Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to be doing an overview this morning of this the life of a character in the scripture that if you're honest with it, you would believe is almost unbelievable. Uh, think of like the most uh, campy serial drama of your generation. I remember one time when I was a really small child uh, walking into the family room and my parents were watching something on television and they turned it off the moment I walked in and I found out it was a show called Peyton's Place and they were embarrassed that they were caught watching such a, you know, worldly kind of thing. And then I remember growing up in an era where there was Dallas and Knott's Landing and Melrose Place and nobody, especially Christians, ever admitted they watched those things because the highs were super high and the lows were super low. And so I started asking some of the younger staff, especially the females on staff, I said, tell me your generation's Melrose Place or Dallas or Knott's Landing. And they said things like Grey's Anatomy, the OC and Vampire Diaries. And then one of them said, well, really, it's The Bachelor. And I was like, oh, it is, ick right? It's not real. They know the camera's on. So the highs are real high and the lows are really low. And why am I telling you all of that? Because if you read the story of this man's life, it's going to seem surreal. Higher highs than most experience and lower lows than most would ever dream of a nightmare. And we're going to be looking at it because we're going to be talking about this liberation of God. We've looked at how God liberated a people. Today, we're going to focus on how God liberated a person. And what was the journey by which they went through? We know that God frees us from the slavery that we willingly entered into. And he doesn't liberate us so that we don't have to answer to anybody. He liberates us so that we can return to our Father's heart and be enslaved to God. A slavery that actually is freedom. But it seems strange to us. We learn that God does this through his mighty hand. We don't liberate ourselves. We simply open ourselves up to his liberation. It's by his outstretched arm and mighty hand. And we realized last week that just in the life of Joshua, that what God asked Moses to do, he asked Joshua to do. And what he asked Joshua to do, he asks you and I to do. And that is listen to his words, trust who he is, and obey. And if we live that out, there is a liberating freedom that's given to us in God. You see, the people have entered into the promised land and they've faced opposing tribes and they have fought battles and God has delivered them. And when they've been disobedient, they've been punished and Joshua dies. And God raises judges up from amongst the tribes to call the people back to him. And these judges would stand up and lead into battle to trust the Lord because they were listening, they were trusting, and they were obeying. And yet the people struggled. And then God calls prophets to come into the land and we learn in 1 Samuel, at the very beginning of this book that we're looking at, that God calls a young man named Samuel. His mother wanted a child. She could not have a child and she prayed to God and said if he would give her a child, she would devote him back to the Lord. And so Hannah had a son named Samuel and he became the great prophet of Israel who led them and guided them. And the people came to Samuel and they said, tell God we want a king. And Samuel says, you have a king, it's God himself. And they said, no, we want like, one like everybody else has. We, we want to be just like the world in this. And Samuel says to God, they, they can't have a king, they have one. And God says, give them a king, but warn them. 
If you take a king upon yourself, he's going to tax you and your stuff. He's going to take your children and denture them into his service. He is going to use you as a commodity and, and not honor me in all of this. If they want a king, let him have a king. And so they pick a man named Saul. Now, the reason they pick Saul is not noble. He was tall. He was handsome. And that was it. Now, he was humble when he first started. But because he looked like a leader... They put him in. Now, before we scoff, let's be honest, there are millions of dollars made every year by people advising politicians how to look tall and handsome, male and female alike. Why? Because we still fall in love with the image of a person instead of the heart of a person. What I want to take you to today is that God does not liberate the image of a person. God liberates only the heart of a person. And how does he do that? I'm glad you asked. Let's answer the question. Our liberation is not about our perfection, it's about our sanctification. It's the first thing we learn, not in the life of Saul, but in the one who would follow King Saul, and his name would be King David. You see, sanctification is the process by which God works in us as we walk by faith. It only happens in that order. The sanctifying work of God comes when we listen, trust, and obey that God begins to do a work in us that's liberating us from inside out. That's why I've entitled today's message, A Man After God's Own Heart, or A Person After God's Own Heart, if you're more comfortable with that. Saul becomes king, and Saul for a while follows God. But Saul's intentions are not always pure, like mine are not always pure. Saul attacks, and God says, I'm going to send you into the Amalekites, and I want you to take them all out, but do not take anything from them. It reminds you of the story of Joshua and Jericho when the Achan and his family stole what was God's and they were punished for it. And Saul goes in and he attacks the Amalekites, but he allows the king to live and he takes some of his herds and flocks. And the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, what did God ask you to do? You might notice there's a trend here. Did you listen? Did you trust? And did you obey? And Saul's like, well, yeah, but I kept those things so I could offer a great sacrifice to God. Did you listen? Did you trust? And did you obey? And Saul has to say no. And so Samuel tells him, Saul, the kingdom will be taken from you because you have taken from God You've and you will be rejected as king. First Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let's look at it together. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command your Lord God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. David is known in scripture as a man after God's own heart based on this passage. But please understand, this is not saying David is a superman or David was a perfect man or David was even a proven man. What Samuel was looking for is a man that was willing to listen, trust, and obey God because of who God was, not because of who the man or woman was. You'll even go back and look at the judges, and I'll tell you, if you want to spend time in the book of Judges, you're going to find out people that were imperfect, but they listened, they trusted, and they obeyed, and they were delivered. Because God's ways are the right ways. It's not about the perfection of a person. It's about the heart of a person that God liberates. And putting ourselves in a position to be men and women who have a heart after God, I'll show you what that is in the second point in just a little bit. So God says to Samuel, I'm going to choose a new king and I want you to go to Bethlehem, interesting town, and I want you to find a man named Jesse, one of his boys will be my king. So Samuel goes and you can, I hope you'll, I hope I'm encouraging you today to read First and Second Samuel. 
It wouldn't take you very long over a couple of days to read this. It is one of the most epic up and down stories in all of scripture. Some of my favorite Old Testament passages are found in these two books. And I would encourage you, if you've not read it, to sit down and have a good reading this week so you know the insides and out of this story. So they go to Jesse's house and Samuel stands there and he's walking along the lines and seven of Jesse's boys are there and he's like, this one? Nope. This one? Nope. This this one? No. After seven, Samuel's like, you sent me to this guy's house in Bethlehem to find the king. He's not here. And he says, no, there's another son. And so he says to Jesse, have, are all of your boys here? And he says, no, my youngest son, David, he's out with the, he's a shepherd and he's out in the field. And he said, we'll bring him in. And when he walks in, God says, yep, that one. He's a kid. He's unproven. His dad didn't even consider him viable. And he walks in. Have you noticed, back to Moses and Joshua, that God doesn't pick people based on if they're tall and good looking. He based on who they are and what he can do with them. From the very beginning, God has always proven it's by his outstretched arm and mighty hand that he delivers. So he picks this young kid. Side note, it'll take 30 to 40 years before David gets what he's anointed to receive. Please understand this. If you're going to be a person after God's own heart, waiting is a part of it. And so Samuel anoints him. The spirit of the Lord comes upon David, the scripture says. God fills him because he's willing and open to being filled. And God begins the sanctifying work in David's life. And the sanctifying work is not that he makes his life easy. David will not have an easy life. David will have to live each and every day choosing whether or not he will listen, trust, and obey the Lord. Some days he does. Some days he doesn't. And yet God is faithful throughout all of it. David and Saul have an interesting relationship. Saul becomes troubled because he knows the kingdom has been taken from him because of his disobedience to God. And so he starts to have this anxiety and this panic and his heart becomes ravaged with fear and depression and they call in this young shepherd boy to play the harp for him and David sings some of the songs that he's written and Saul's heart is encouraged and strengthened and they develop a relationship and his son uh, Jonathan becomes David's best friend and actually will give his life to protect David and he marries one of Saul's daughters named Michal and and they're married and, and they have a great relationship until they don't like every marriage they'll have struggles but Saul is now, or David is now a part of Saul's family. And then we get to 1 Samuel 17, and you all know this if you've been to church at all. The Philistines begin to attack the Israelites, and there's a great battle, and they have a giant warrior. And what was fashion in those days was for the, the, the two best warriors to meet and battle it out so that it would be an omen for the battle. And Goliath stands in the valley, and he taunts for 40 consecutive days. He taunts the Israelites. He taunts God. And he says, you have no warrior that's brave enough to come out. David just happens to be at the battle scene that day. He's brought provisions for his brothers. The army was not financed by the government. It was financed by the families. And so he brought food to his brothers and water so they would have supplies. And there they are. And David's like, well, who's, who's the big ugly guy down there talking smack? And so that's Goliath. And he says, how long has he been doing this? 40 days. And David says, I got him. And his brothers are like, shut up and go home, you brat. You're just mocking us for not being brave. And David's like, no, no, let, who is that? He said, it's Goliath. And then he hears Goliath taunt. And David volunteers to fight Goliath. And Saul says to him, no, you're too young, you're too inexperienced. Look at chapter 17, verse 34. 
David says to King Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued it from the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Don't read that so quickly. You don't imagine what it would be like for a 14 or 15 year old boy to grab a lion by the hair. But then he gives credit where credit's due. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the army of the living God. Now, if that's a puffed up, chesty little boy who's like, I'm going to slaughter all the giants of the land, pause for a moment because David's feet are securely in faith. Listen, the Lord who rescued me, I'm sorry, your servant has killed a lion. This will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Do you hear what David just said? God's gonna do this. I know who he is and he's not gonna take this. So David's premise is that the glory of God must be honored and if no one else will do it, David steps into it. Then you know what happens. Verse 43, Goliath sees this little guy come out and they tried to put armor on him, but he was too small. It, adult armor didn't fit him. And he's like, I got this. I didn't, never needed armor against the bear and the lion. So Goliath says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. Do you notice that David doesn't say the whole world will know that I won? There's no platform here. There's no self-promotion here. There's just a man who says, you will not defy and take the glory of my God. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spirit the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. This is what God taught Moses, this is what God taught Joshua, and this is what God was teaching David. And those are just three of the Old Testament characters. If we wanted to, we could spend an entire year walking the text of the Old Testament to see God's liberation pattern is proven. David's response comes from trust. Because God is sanctifying David in the waiting and in the trusting and in the obeying. He's calling him forward. Well, you guys know the story, and if you don't, you need to read 1 Samuel 17. David takes a shot, puts it right between Goliath's eyes. He cuts his head off. They attack the Philistine army. They conquer them, just like he said would happen. So King Saul hears about this and sees it, and he hears the crowd. They're singing this strange song. I can't imagine any generation would sing it, but this one did. Saul, King Saul, he conquers thousands. And everyone's like, and David, he conquers tens of thousands. And Saul's like, excuse me, I'm the king and my glory is necessary. And they're like, no, 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 you didn't do that. He did, he killed Goliath. For 40 days, you cowered. He stood in the gap. Saul becomes jealous. And the rest of the text takes us through a period of time where Saul relentlessly pursues David to kill him because he can't stand the competition. He can't stand the glory he's lost and he pursues him. And I'm only going to give you a reference here for time's sake, but if you want to just write down 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26, you're going to notice two, two opportunities where David had to leave his family and he had to leave his comfort and he had to live out in the wilderness like a scavenger. He lived in caves. He lived in, in places that no man could live. He lived out in the wilderness experience. Why? Because God was bringing him to an understanding of faith 
faith and Saul kept pursuing him. And on two occasions, chapter 24 and chapter 26, David has a chance to end Saul's life and end his own misery. I want you to think about those two expressions. What is your history when you can end your misery and take out your opponent? I'm not much of like David. Because if I can stop my misery, that's normally my first leaning, is to make my life more comfortable, not more proven. And twice, David has the chance to kill Saul. My favorite is in chapter 24, because I'm a junior high boy at heart, so I'm not even going to apologize. But Saul goes into a cave to use the bathroom, thinking he's in private, and he doesn't understand all of David's army is right there watching him. Church, that's funny. And he reaches down with his sword while Saul's a disposed of and he takes a piece of his boxer short sticks it in his pocket he goes out the next side Saul's like come here you dog and he holds up his boxer shorts he goes missing something Saul's like oh you're a better man than me David and David's like I will not lay my hand on God's anointed and it happens again in chapter 26 while sleeping they run down and they steal his jug and Saul wakes up and curses him and David says I could have taken your head off Why would David not take his own comfort? Because God was doing a sanctifying work in David's life. And David learned to trust and obey. Chapter 31, as we end the first book, the Philistines attack the Israelites one more time and Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in the battlefield. And David is heartbroken. And in 2 Samuel comes around, David becomes king. But it's not an easy kingdom. Some of Saul's sons step up and say they should be king and there's a battle and David's forces go against them and it's, it's hard. It's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to trust him in these moments. And then David is finally in chapter five of 2 Samuel. He's named king over all of Israel and he captures this town called Jerusalem on this mountaintop. He captures this land and he takes it for his own and he deems, and I want you to pay attention now when we get to 2 Samuel, the change goes from how David is being shaped to how David lives this shaping out. And So he makes Jerusalem the center of his land and all of a sudden in chapters five and six, named king, he establishes a new capital and he brings the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember the Ark of the Covenant was stolen because Saul decided it was a good luck charm and took it into battle and God's like, what, what? And he let it be captive and taken by another nation and they were cursed for possessing it. So they finally abandoned it in a person's house and that's a great story you'll read if you read. And then all of a sudden he brings the Ark of the Covenant back and David is so glorifying God in this moment that he can't stop dancing and he's parading around and he's showing no dignity and his wife, Mikal, looks at him and she's like, that's lacking decorum, that's not proper. And David's like, I will be more undignified in the presence of my God because the ark has been brought home. And then David in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel desires, I know this seems strange, but if you follow it, you're going to see something beautiful here. It's going to remind you of Moses. Chapter 7, David decides that there needs to be a place for the presence of God to gather once they've established now that they own Jerusalem, the place of the holy mountain. He wanted to build him. He said, I live in a, in a house with paneling, of cedar. I live in this beautiful home and God is in a tent. And it's kind of fascinating. He goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, I'd like to build a dwelling for God. And Nathan says, I think you should. Nathan goes to God and God says, okay, there can be a dwelling for me. And David brings the Ark of the Covenant in. And yet God says to him, you're not going to be the one to build this. You see, there's, I'll talk about why in just a moment, but look with me at 2 Samuel 7. 
God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. David, you will get to do this, but it will come from your lineage. It will not come from you. He says, but you will build a place for me and it will be on this place that some amazing things will happen. And the answer to this prophecy about David can either be his son Solomon or it could be a greater son of his named Jesus. Or it could be both. And sometimes it can be both. And so in this powerful moment, David has the same thing Moses had, a passion for the presence of God. It wasn't just a house. He's not building Disneyland. He's not building this memorial place that talks about something that once happened. David understands what Moses did. The presence of God is what is most important. That he is the one we hold on to. And the Lord promises that there would be a dynasty that will never end from David. If David remains faithful and his people listen, trust, and obey, God is always faithful. So if you notice that God is doing a work in David from a young man to an adult, see, our liberation is not about our perfection, it's about our sanctification. And also, our liberation reveals a heart after God's own heart. See, God takes us through a process to break our hearts of slavery to self that we might become slaves to him, a slavery that's actually freedom. But there will be failure when we try to walk by faith. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins to introduce a period of David's life that's hard to, hard to watch. David now is the king, united kingdom. They're building this great city, Jerusalem, in which will be their holy city. It will be the place that all will gather. And, and David's starting to feel himself a little bit. It happens to all of us. Once we get comfort, it's hard to abandon comfort. We become enslaved to it. And so David in chapter 11 sees a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of turning away and averting his eyes, David lusts after her and being king, he calls her to his palace. He has sexual sin with her. He makes her pregnant. He finds out she's pregnant. He tries to cover up of cover-ups like we all do, tries to hide what he did so he can keep it contained and very few people will notice. And so he arranged for her husband, who happens to be one of his soldiers, to be accidentally killed in battle so that he can cover up and take Bathsheba to be his wife. God is displeased with this, as God is with all sin. And so God does not allow the consequences of our sins to be ignored. His justice and his wrath will not allow sin to be treated as if it's nothing. And so David must come to an understanding. Nathan the prophet confronts him with the wonderful little parable of a man who had thousands of sheep and he stole someone's lamb. And David becomes furious. And Nathan says, you're the man. David is broken by this. The child dies soon after being born. David's family begins to unravel, as God said it would. The consequences of our sin, church, God will forgive our sins. The consequences are going to be tasted by all of us. And in the midst of this, David writes one of the most beautiful psalms in the entire scripture, Psalm 51, if you'll turn in your Bibles to it. We don't have time to cover it, but I'm going to encourage you this week. Read First and Second Samuel, and when you get to the 11th and 12th chapters of Second Samuel, stop and read Psalm 51. We're just going to read the back half of it. I want you to see what a man after God's own heart sounds like. I want you to see how they act. I want you to see where they put their confidence. Verse 11. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David throws himself on the grace of God. How and why would he do that? Because he understood the grace of God in the sanctifying wildernesses he lived in. That God is doing a work in all of us so that when we fail, and we will, it is the grace of God that we turn to. I love the fact that David doesn't barter, promise, or self-repair. David falls on God. It's God alone that is hope. See, and then he cries out this great prayer, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I like what one translation says, restore to me the joy of when I was first saved. Because the freeing, the freedom of God, the liberation of God is our passion. Like Moses, David loved the presence of God. What does he cry out for when he has sinned? He doesn't cry out against punishment. He doesn't cry out against banishment. He doesn't say, let me keep my throne. What he says is, do not cast your spirit away from me. A person after God's own heart is a person after God. And nothing can get between that. God is the treasure. God, the presence of God is what we need. If we lose everything in life, we have God, we still have everything in life. If we hold everything in life and we have the presence of God that's nowhere near us, we have nothing. We have nothing of value. You see, the common experience of a person after God's own heart is how do they respond when they've walked away? I think David and Saul were loved by God equally. I think, I think David and Saul were commissioned by God equally. The difference between King Saul and King David is how they repented. It's what they did when they found themselves dishonoring God. Saul could not confess, Saul could not repent, and Saul remained stubborn and belligerent. David was broken. Not broken by fear of God, broken by the loss of the presence of God. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. When we are being sanctified by the work of God in our life, we will want nothing else. David's story is about how God delivers the delivered. Did you catch that? How does God deliver those of us who have been delivered? How does God free those of us who have been freed? How does God liberate the liberated? He does it through the gift of confession and repentance to return back to the Father's love. There's so many more stories of David and I hope you'll read them. But let me put it this simply. The passion for the presence of God is the sign of a person after God's own heart. Nothing will stop us from this. Because we know that on this mountain, this city of Jerusalem, on this hilltop, David would buy a threshing floor. And on that threshing floor, his son Solomon would build a temple. And that temple would sit on that space where sacrifices would be made to God. Because David would make the first sacrifice on this. And then his son down the line, the one that was promised, would make the great sacrifice in that place and that blood would free us all liberated he would rule God's people in the city of Jerusalem but a greater ruler would come who would overcome death and sin and the power of destruction and bring life to all the difference between a person 
who wants God and a person who truly seeks the heart of God is how do we respond? How do we respond when we have walked away? When we have stolen the glory of God? When we have lived for ourselves? I'd like to ask you this morning, are you open to the sanctifying work of waiting, listening, and trusting God through the hard times? At the cost of comfort? Are you pursuing the heart of God? Or are you just after what God can give you? Do you live to the mercy of God's love? Is God the treasure? Is God the gift? Because if you sit here this morning and you go, I I think so, I want it to be. I do too. What do we do to return to the heart of God? Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You do not want sacrifices to impress you. You want a contrite heart and a broken spirit to come home to a good father, a father who wants nothing more than to connect his heart with yours in the most purifying ways. This is the God we worship. This is the God we can turn to. And for those of you who have never bowed a knee before God, this is the invitation we offer. Will you come to the heart of a father who calls you home? Because he will do a work in your life that will free you. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.